One of the tricks to hearing and understanding Scripture is to be able to hear it as a unified whole. In other words, it helps to have a macro understanding of what's going on. When we understand Scripture in this way, we can see connections between different passages. Those connections give us insight, and when we have those, Scripture has deeper meaning. Today's passage from James is full of connections to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and those passages illumine what James is saying, and in turn, James reinforces what they are saying. And today, we also have some fun with languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Syriac. The bottom line, the self-referencing nature of Scripture gives us a single message. We are called to walk the way. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Father Dustin Lyon. Today we're going to continue our exploration of the Epistle of St. James, and we'll complete chapter 4. And we'll start here with verse 11. I think I'll do it like I did last week. I'll read through the entire section that we're going to look at today, discuss it as a whole, and then look at it piece by piece. And I think you'll see that today's section is actually very interesting. It relies a lot on other aspects of Scripture, or it sounds very similar to other passages in Scripture. And this is what I want all my listeners to do, is I want you to be able to hear Scripture and recall how it's similar to other passages. In this way, it'll kind of bring the Bible together in a nice, neat whole, and you'll be able to see connections that you haven't seen before. And when you see connections like this, the Bible will start to make more sense. You'll get more out of it, and you'll find a deeper meaning in the passages. So let's read the passage, and then we'll go back and look at these different passages and see where they tied other parts of Scripture. So this is chapter 4 of James, starting with verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. So here James continues with his idea that faith cannot be absent from the way you live your life. You have to walk the way. And here he's talking about speaking evil against others. 
In other words, if you have faith, but you don't put that faith into practice, and instead you just sit there and notice other people's faults, that's a problem. You're not walking the way. He says you are a judge rather than a doer of the law. And of course, he says there's only one judge, that is God. And God is our judge. And he's the one who gives us the law. And because he's the one who gives us the law, he's the one that's able to discern whether we followed the law or not. And because we aren't God, we shouldn't put ourselves in a position where we're judging others. In fact, as he says, that's contrary to the law. The law says that we ought to love our neighbors. And so (laughs) there's no way we can be a judge and love our neighbors at the same time in this case, as James is saying. And so we ought to spend our time focusing on how to love our neighbors rather than uh, being gossips and judging others. And this goes right into the second passage where he says that our life is vanity. And he basically says, you better spend time loving your neighbor because everything else you do is going to be worthless. If you spend time making money and doing business and trying to become rich and wealthy, that's a fruitless endeavor, as James says. And your life is a mist that appears for just a little while and then vanishes. And finally, he goes back to the idea that doing the law or doing what God instructs is actually doing God's will. And that should be our goal as Christians, to do God's will rather than trying to be God ourself and judging others. So that's the main gist of what James is saying here. And so I want to go in and I want to look at some of these verses in isolation and see how they lead us to other sections of the scripture. So first he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. So in the Greek text, again, it just says brothers, adelphu. And we know that Greek is a language that includes gender within the grammar of the language. So when he says brothers, it's in the masculine, but it's not necessarily gender masculine. It's grammatical masculine. And so it's appropriate in English to say brothers and sisters, as the New Revised Standard Version does here. Because he's addressing a crowd. And for those who don't know, in languages typically that have gender, when you have a group of people and there is a male person included, the entire group becomes male. Even if you have 99 women and one man, you refer to the group in the masculine way. Um, That's just the way the grammar of the language works, and we shouldn't read too much into it. So he says, whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. He's talking about the law and judging. Where else in Scripture do we have this sort of conversation? Well, if you're saying in Matthew, in the Sermon of the Mount, you're absolutely correct. So here is a part of what Jesus says as he's teaching the people. This is Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you will give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
or play actor. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's. So Jesus is prompting us to do the same thing. We ought not to judge because we're not God. We're not the one who gave the law. It's not our law. So we have no means of discerning right and wrong according to the law when we see others. Instead, we ought to worry about ourselves. And this is the whole point. Um, Instead of judging others, we need to make sure that we are following the law. In other words, we need to see the speck in our own eye. This log is our own misdeeds, our own sin, our own failings. And only when we can work on improving ourselves will we not be worrying about judging others. And I know this is hard, especially in communities. As humans, we are social beings. We're used to being with one another. And I've gone through this with communities People always want to gossip and judge others. And it's hard to say, no, you can't do that. You have to focus on yourself. And this is why we as Orthodox Christians talk so much about confession. Especially right now during Lent, like we're in, where the focus is on meeting Christ in the resurrection. Now, this may sound strange, but... I have heard priests connect resurrection, anastasy in Greek, with judgment. We are resurrected in order to be judged. So I think it's appropriate as we think about Christ's resurrection, because Christ is the one who gets to judge, we also think about our own resurrection. And this should, in some way, a little bit scare us. And this is why we think about confession so much as we prepare to meet Christ in the resurrection. It's like the parable that Jesus said, if someone takes us to court, we ought to settle the affairs before we get to the court, because it'll be better for us. And confession is simply doing that. We're settling our affairs and getting right with God before we have to meet him in judgment. This is actually a very scary idea in some ways. But the idea of confession isn't just that we list all of our wrongdoings, but it's seeing ourselves as we truly are. And it's hearing the priest give that absolution, which is a reminder that God loves us and accepts us in repentance, no matter what our faults are. So the priest isn't there to judge. The priest is there to remind us in God's judgment, he is merciful. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. So as we go about this Lenten season, we should remember we should be focusing on our own spiritual life and what we can do to improve ourselves and follow God's instruction, or Torah, more closely, rather than worrying about what others around us are doing. And this passage also leads me to remembering what Jesus says in Matthew 6.14, and this is how he sums up the Lord's Prayer. He gives the Lord's Prayer, and then after rescuing us from the evil one, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This, again, is an image of the judge, that if we are living by the law, we are loving our neighbor, we're forgiving them. And this is how God will treat us with the same sort of mercy. 
And then James, going back to the James passage, this is verse 12. He continues on by saying, There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So it's two sides of the same coin, salvation and destruction. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? And it's a reminder that we are not judges, but doers of the law, which tells us to love our neighbor. In other words, we have to walk the way. So then he continues, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there, doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. And this, again, should remind you of a parable. And this is the parable of the man who builds the barns. This is in Luke 12. And this is starting in verse 16. Then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Of course, being rich towards God is following his commandments, following his instruction. And it's the same idea here. Instead of a farmer with an abundance of crops and storing them in barns, rather than sharing them with his neighbor, it's about someone going to a town and conducting business in a way that makes them rich or wealthy monetarily. And James is basically saying the same thing that Jesus said in that parable. You fool. What does it matter if you have a lot of money? You're just building yourself up. You ought to be looking after your neighbor, because all that wealth you get, you can't take it with you when you die. And it reminds me of an icon we have in the Orthodox Church. And in the icon, there is a saint, and I can't remember his name, but there's a saint standing there, and he's looking at the tomb of Alexander the Great. And in the tomb, you see Alexander's bones. And the caption, it's sort of like a, an ancient cartoon, if you will, there's a caption, And the caption essentially says, what good did all the wealth and power that Alexander accumulated do him? It did him no good. He ended up in the tomb just like the rest of us. In other words, we all become equal in death. Our power, our wealth, our fame does us no good. And this next part is even more interesting. James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. So this mist that vanishes. For those who really know your scripture, you should be saying, that sounds a lot like the beginning of Ecclesiastes. And here's what that says. This is chapter 1, starting with verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, why would I think of vanity when I hear the word mist in English? Because it's the same idea. Vanity in Ecclesiastes, in the original Hebrew, is the word hebel, and it means breath. So, 
if you were to translate it more literally, it's basically saying breath of breath. Everything is breath. And the idea is that you, you breathe out and your breath disappears. It is no more. And in English, we call that vanity. It's the idea that it's worthless, just like your breath goes out and disappears. And of course, if you listened very closely to the Hebrew word, Hebel, it sounds a lot like a name, Abel. And in fact, this is the same root word. So Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, who gets killed by Cain, his name actually means breath that vanishes. So, in other words, if you translate the same, you could say instead of translating his name as Abel, maybe you should translate it as vanity, if you're going to stick with Ecclesiastes. So, as I thought about this, I wondered if the word that James uses is the same word that's used in the Greek Septuagint in Ecclesiastes. Do we have the same word here? And the answer actually is no, which I think is interesting. The word that James uses that's translated as mist, is atmis. And the word for vanity that's in Ecclesiastes in the Greek Septuagint is mateotis, which means futility. So it's not the same word, but still the image is the same. The image or the idea is the same. And I also started wondering, there is an Aramaic, or Syriac, version of the New Testament, and it's called the Peshitta. Some people believe that the Peshitta is the original New Testament, and the Greek is a translation. Now, most scholars believe the Greek is the original, and the Peshitta, the, the Syriac or Aramaic version, is the translation. But because Aramaic is very closely related to Hebrew, I wondered, in the Aramaic version, is that word the same as what's being used in Ecclesiastes? And again, the answer is no. So the Aramaic of Ecclesiastes does use the word Hebel, or a version of that. But in James, the Aramaic version is Leg, if I'm pronouncing that right, the root being L-H-G, essentially, in English. And it's different. So, and I don't know why. Or it would seem that James might use the same wording, because he's drawing on the same idea, but he doesn't. So for those who are looking for a thesis, you could explore this idea a little bit more. But I think the idea still holds that what James is talking about is that our life is fragile. Our life is like the lilies of the field. They pass away. It's like a breath. It goes out and it disappears. And this is exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying. So it's useless. It's futile, in other words, to worry about building our wealth in a world where we can't keep it. So finally, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. And here the English misleads us just a little bit. It says, if the Lord wishes. And the word used in Greek is thelo which actually means will, if the Lord wills. And we should think about the ultimate image of someone obeying God's will is Christ. It's exactly his prayer when he's in Gethsemane. So in Gethsemane, he'd already had the Last Supper with the disciples. He knows he's going to be arrested, and this will lead to his crucifixion. And he prays in the garden. This is Matthew 
chapter 26, verse 42. And again he went away for a second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And this is Thelo, your will. And again, it's the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the idea is, is that God's will is done when we walk the way. When we follow his teachings, his commandments, his Torah, however you want to put that. And this is the right thing to do, he says. And if we fail to do that, it is a sin. And the word for sin here, of course, is amartia, which means to miss the mark. In other words, to go astray. You've probably heard the idea that the word for sin in Greek is an archery term, that you missed the bullseye, you went astray. And it's true. If you're failing to follow God's law, you're failing to love your neighbor, you're failing to put your faith into action, then you have gone astray. You've missed the mark. You haven't gotten the point of all of it. And so you have sinned. So uh, we'll end there, and next week we'll pick up with chapter 5. But James's point here is well taken, that we aren't God. We ought not to be judging others, but instead spending our time doing what the lawgiver asks us to do. In other words, we should walk the way. God bless you all. See you next week.